All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everyone. It's Mo Chwinunu. Thanks for joining me for this Mo News conversation. I am currently traveling and in place of the daily newscast, we're bringing you some new interviews and deep dives over the course of the next couple of weeks. Today, we continue our conversation with Julie Bogart. She's the author of a new book, Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. As we begin a new school year, I've gotten feedback from a number of you about having more uh, topics in relation to education and school. And so I thought there was no one better than Julie to talk about some of these issues. I hope many of you enjoyed part one. If you haven't gotten to part one, you should definitely listen to the first part of our conversation. This actually all started when I went on Julie's podcast last month, the Brave Writer podcast, to talk about how to help uh, students kids better vet their media, come up with reliable sources. And so we're continuing this conversation on this podcast. She's the creator of the award-winning Brave Writer Education Program and the founder of the Brave Learner Home, which supports homeschool parents. I know you will enjoy this conversation as we explore what is and what isn't working in the American education system these days, raising critical thinkers, how to leverage the internet. And that's one thing that we really dive into today, the impact of social media and the internet and how to use that to your advantage as a parent. We also discussed the state of play on college campuses. We discussed a lot about elementary school and middle school in the part one edition. Part two today, we'll dive into higher education and we'll just talk generally speaking about more solutions for raising critical thinking kids. Before we start, a reminder to follow or subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you're listening to us on at this moment. Hit the follow button so you never miss a thing. Also, leave us a review. Every review makes a difference. And I appreciate all of you for taking a quick moment to uh, provide a review on whatever app you're listening to us on. And now let's get back to my conversation. I think in a previous interview, Julie, you said that the internet was one of the reasons you wrote this book. I'd, I'd love to get into into more of uh, what inspired you to write the book and, and why the internet is uh, it led you here. I know. Isn't that great? Uh, so I am, as we've established, someone who homeschooled my kids. Back in the early 1990s, before the internet, I was in a fairly religious group of women. We were white all of us were heterosexual uh, back then and married and stay-at-home moms. Most of us didn't have outside jobs. I worked as a freelance writer and editor, but I was a stay-at-home mother. And so we would have park days and we would share curriculum resources and ideas for teaching. But it was a very small world before the internet. And we were all desperate for more ideas and more information for this very weird lifestyle we had adopted. So along comes the internet, and I always say the second they swung open the doors, homeschoolers were the first to run through. We were so desperate for support and um, allyship. 
And we started meeting at these little discussion board watering holes. There were two primary ones. And I imagined I was just going to have a great time with all these women that I had known in person. And now all these new people past the Mississippi River, right? And would you believe within months, there were full on food fights, right? Over paper diapers versus cloth diapers, whether or not to use bottles or breastfeed, how you give birth, should you have a VBAC, you know, uh, a vaginal birth after cesarean, these things that we really cared about, but they weren't just like conversations. They were full scale arguments. And when we got into politics, even though most of us agreed or religion, most of us agreed, we couldn't agree on the finer points without true anger. Like I always say, did we invent trolling? We called it flaming back then. It was just, we were so mean. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're describing a very familiar uh, environment on social media and the internet right now, Julie. Yes, and this is, we're talking 96, 97. Now, there were lots of lovely conversations. Some of my best friends came from that era and I'm still close to them to this day. But here's the question that occurred to me very early on was, why does everyone think they're right? They don't just present it as like, well, you know, here's how my church does it. Or, well, this is what worked well for my kid. It was, this is actually the truth. And now that I've told it to you, why aren't you just falling in line and agreeing? And so this became an obsession of mine. Why we think we're right, how we get to the thinking we hold, and why we assume that just by declaring it, it will persuade another person. And I literally spent 20 years doing the thinking and research into this way. I went to grad school with this as a primary question, and I've got um, book outlines all the way back to 2000 that finally resulted in this book. Because to me, the internet somehow released the truth about us. We could be polite at dinner parties and park days, but fundamentally, we think everybody else is wrong and that we are the only good critical thinker in the room. That is true. We all think we're good drivers, too. It's very similar energy. <laughs> um, as, as a journalist, I have certainly gotten my share uh, through the years of people who think, I'm an idiot. How do I not know the story? You're biased. You're this. Um, and it's so interesting to me because the internet offers so much promise at the same time, right? Like, mm. I grew up, I'm the last generation of millennials that grew up uh, going to the library to go get the World Book Encyclopedia yes. to learn about a country, like I didn't have Google until college. And so we live in this time period when like we've never had more resources of information, more available, multiple perspectives, the ability to see everyone's perspective and their yes. opinions. And yet we're now a world rife with misinformation, distrust, <laughs> arguments, and lack of understanding for all those perspectives. It's so infuriating that, to happen? me. I, right. Because for me, I am a technological optimist all the way back. I love Herman Kahn. I love that whole thinking um, that the problems technology creates, technology will solve. That's kind of a motto that I have adopted. So I saw the internet as utopia. I mean, to me, this idea of open source, everybody exchanges. I loved Twitter back when it was chronologically delivered to you instead of decided for you. So I saw a lot of promise too. But what I really think happened is we just unearthed what was really there. And we're sort of, did we talk about this before? I feel like we're in a PTSD moment from visual media and now from glut of media. So if you think of all of humankind, we are drowning in information 
a lot of it visual, more than any human being's, you know, spirit, brain, mind has ever encountered before. And we're supposed to make sense of it and also include perspectives that aren't our own. Like that is a lot to ask of this frail body and mind that is mine. So take that, link that back now, as we talk about drowning in information to raising critical thinkers, Mm -hmm. utilizing the internet, utilizing those perspectives. What, what are effective strategies to take the best of the internet, if you will, um, and social media for the purposes of, of uh, your book? So I really feel like my generation, I'm 60, we're hopeless. It's over for us. We grew up pre-internet and we still think that we're right because we, we have so much you're, better thinking than you're reinforcing else. okay boomer you're, yeah you're yeah 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 okay. oh yeah, for sure okay. but i think it's kind of accurate because we really did grow up with an idea that there is an authoritative source that was our whole training till we were 45 or 50 or 60 or 35 like at least that long chunk of time and so when we go online i think we're very vulnerable very susceptible mm. to authoritative declarations in a way that you know, the Gen Z is like, oh, sure, it was on the internet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so so funny because I link all this stuff back to my field and it's like, you grew up with Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America. And what he said went. And you have a generation now that's like, I don't trust any of you people. That's it. That's it. So they've grown up with a lot of snark and distrust and making fun and they know how to manipulate the tools in a way that my age group doesn't. So to me, you'd already described why school is a difficult place for this to happen. So as is usual with me, let's go back to the living room. Let's let the parents sort of deconstruct their own way of thinking so that they can facilitate what I would consider a revolution in how we approach internet glut of information. So the key questions, my my subtitle of this book could have been A Thousand and One Questions Julie Thinks You Should Ask Your Children. I mean, it's loaded with questions. So if we could just draw from that, ask questions, that would be a great place to start. And the kind of questions I want you to ask your kids are helping them think through source, content. So for instance, let's say you're reading a, a fairy tale book to your child. Let's pick the three little pigs. And you've read the book and they just take it at face value. Yeah, this is the story as it really went down. Could you also then at that point say, do you think if the wolf was telling this story, it'd be the same story? How might it be a different story if the wolf was telling it? And now your child's like, oh, well, um," and they might tell some version pretty similar. And then you could literally pull out John Shuska's amazing book, The True Story of the Three Little Pigs by A. Wolf. And... Watch how he uses humor to retell the story from a completely different perspective and allow them to start to notice that information is shaped through storytellers, all the information we get. And if that becomes a practice in your family, we used to watch Disney movies and my husband would pause the film right after the opening dramatic scene because there's always a chase or something big that opens a Disney movie. And then he would be, he would say, So who are we rooting for right now? And then the kids would say, and we'd say, well, how do you know? And nobody's even spoken a word. How do we know? Well, he's in the front and he's being chased. So do we always assume the guy in front is the good guy and the chasers are the bad guy? How do we know that? So you just start helping your kids actually look at the conclusions they're drawing automatically 
and becoming more aware that they're actually drawing conclusions. That's the foundation right there for critical thinking. Are, are, are you opening a can of worms though? Well, mom, uh, I know that you want me to eat broccoli, but from my perspective, dessert oh. should come first. <laughs> oh my God, I hope I'm opening that can of worms. So the next time that happens, go down the rabbit hole. Occasionally, you can't do this every day. Sometimes you just got to tie their shoes, buckle them in a car seat and go to Target. I get it. But occasionally, couldn't we say to this child that you said, eat your vegetables? Well, I think it's better to eat dessert first. Well, that's interesting. Shall we try it for a day? Shall we see what happens? Um, how much ice cream should you have? On what basis do you decide how much ice cream? Where did you get that idea from? I'm curious. Because a lot of times these power dynamics, these struggles are about power. They're not actually about thinking or information. And also, have you spent any time interrogating this random belief you have? Uh, the example I love to use uh, when I speak to book clubs is this one. So imagine it's time for dinner. You've got a six-year-old. Say, hey, honey, go wash your hands. It's time to eat. And your child has done it every day until today and says, yeah, I don't want to. The typical parent, there are two ways they respond. The first one is, do it. I said so, right? That's kind of old school authoritarian, but at least it's clear. You're basically saying, I'm in charge, you're not, do what I said. That's a very clear. Today's parent does a manipulative form of this. They call it cooperation instead of obedience. It's just gaslightier. And so what they'll say is, you know, oh, honey, you need to wash your hands because, and then they just go grab the most recent piece of propaganda they've believed. So they say, well, science says, you know, germs get on your hands. And if you eat food with germs on your hands, you'll get sick. Is that actually true? Didn't that child just eat Cheerios off the floor? Didn't you pick up the pacifier of your toddler off the target floor, lick it to get the germs off, and then stick it in your child's mouth? Do you actually believe that? Your child is actually challenging a belief you haven't interrogated. So what I say is, your child says they don't want to, lead with curiosity. You don't, why not? What's going on here? Well, I hate the water. Is it too hot, too cold? Should I get a thermometer? Let's measure the temperature and see which temperature you can tolerate. Oh, it's, mm -hmm. it's not that, it's, it's wet. Do you wanna use hand sanitizers? Oh, it's too sticky? Shoot, should we Google ways to get germs off hands? Because I still care about germs, even though you don't. Oh, heat will do it. Okay, should we try blow drying your hands instead of washing them for the next week? Or could you just roll the dice? Could you say, you know what, you're right. I don't know if I actually believe this. Should we find out? Do you want to risk getting sick for a week and see what happens? We don't allow our kids to do any data collection. We don't. We're Ju so... Julie, Julie, you have the patience of a saint. <laughs> Some parents would be like, Julie, this all sounds great in concept, but I have two crying kids. I got to go pick up the other one from uh, soccer right. practice. And this one better just wash their hands because they have about five minutes to eat right now. That's exactly right. That's why I said do this once in, once in a while, once in a month, once in a okay. month, one child, once in a month. Sometimes you don't have time, but here's the problem. If you never do it, if the only way you live with your kids is I have the information in the secret vault of my deeper, better understanding, and you don't, and you don't get to collect any of your own data, do any of your own research, represent any of your experience, by 13, you will, they will do that to you, and you'll be in for a big shock. Yeah. So we're talking about raising critical thinkers, and now we have a society um, 
you know, of adults. And it seems at times uh, that we've never been more divided and more angry at each other. And you describe being people being keyboard warriors where they're saying things on the internet to each other that we would never say to each other in person. Um, How, how is this lack of critical thinking manifesting itself um, based on, on what you're seeing? So the biggest problem we have is we think if we say it louder and with more sources of authority that we agree with, people will hear it and finally fall into line. We use conversion as our chief strategy for winning the day. I like to take a different position. What I try to do when I hear someone who doesn't agree with me is I challenge myself to see if what I believe accounts for them. So for instance, let's just take gun control, it's an easy one for me. If I, who is really not a gun person and thinks, yeah, I wish we didn't even have guns, that's how far my feelings about guns go, Um, But I I take a more moderate position than that in actual legislation. But let's just say I'm a very edge case. I I don't have any interest in relationship to guns. And so I'm like, yeah, all gun control measures, I'm for all of them because they don't affect me in any way. And then I meet my friend whose family lives in Kentucky and they love hunting, generations of hunters. I have to pause and ask myself, how does my perspective about this one piece of legislation also account for them? And that's kind of what I think is missing in all of our discourse. I can hear a homeschooler say something like, homeschooling is great. And then they're told, well, there was this child abuse case reported in homeschooling. And the homeschooler immediately wants to say, well, it's not because of homeschooling. Um, and so we don't need any of these you know, supervisory regulations. But that's not how I come. I come, oh, this information just came up. It's related to homeschooling. How does my view of homeschooling account for children who are getting abused by homeschooling parents? I think we don't expand to include viewpoints that we don't hold in our thinking, and that would transform everything if we did. Instead, what we do is, I'm trying to get you on Team Julie, and so I'm going to tell you what's wrong with all your views and then hope that you'll agree with all of mine without accounting for just how radically different their experience, perspective, and needs are. We've been talking a lot about education until the age of 18. And I know um, you you teach at the higher education level. Mm-hmm. And curious as to what you see, uh, I mean, because we've been hearing a lot about how universities have gone wrong, how the state of <laughs> campus dialogue, I, you know, I had a recent experience, I was talking to a university administrator who is like this generation of kids now will tweet and try to cancel each other. And when I try to talk to them, they've actually never tried to solve it in person or never tried to resolve it in person. They just went straight to the internet to try to cancel each other. Um, how, what, are, what are some universities doing well, you know, to think optimistically here about cultivating this after, you know, receiving these kids after 18 years of, uh, you know, public or private school or homeschool education? Yeah. So my son, Jacob, was a resident assistant at Ohio State University several years ago, and they trained the resident assistants in how to train kids to talk to each other when they have roommate problems. They discovered that they would sit in the same room across from each other, texting their argument instead of saying the words out loud. So that's how much this generation uses writing, by the way, a lot of writing. They're good writers. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're writing to each other. So they actually were providing that training to the RAs so that they could show kids how to have meaningful spoken communication. So that's why it's good for you to learn to do that with your children at home so they start to build that skill set. The other thing, though, is that I think classrooms 
could do a better job of facilitating that kind of engagement. When I taught at Xavier University, I used to divide them into these groups, and then I would throw out questions about the reading, and then they would talk as a group, and then they would represent their perspectives on the board in these certain columns. So it took, it took advantage of both modalities, talking as a group, and then writing what could be read. So the conflict wasn't head to head, like I speak and then you speak and we argue, but they were speaking with each other and then they were doing writing and then they could read it and then we could talk again. I think what texting and emailing have taught us is that sometimes it is easier to represent a dissenting perspective in writing because it gives the other person a chance to manage their reaction that head-to-head -head sometimes gets very hot very quickly. So I see that as a skill that's really valuable, but learning then how to have that conversation is also important. So we're trying to facilitate both and honor both. One thing I was interested in was uh, you write about reading actual hardcover books versus <laughs> our digital diet these days and how that's impacting the mind, our patients, the ability to deep read. Explain, explain that concept. And, and how the way we read things and short bites, and I say this candidly as somebody who's presenting news and information in short bites <laughs> on Instagram, I hope I'm doing a service for people. Um, how, you absolutely how, are. <laughs> okay, good, good. Thank you for the endorsement, Julie. But, but talk to me about the evolution of, of reading books. All these years where we weren't reading, then we were reading books, and now we're in these kind of short snippets. Yeah. So the research there was new to me. In fact, I went into writing this book with a really strong perspective that all those short bites and all that scrolling was fine. And then I read a book by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains. And I was so disappointed to have my viewpoint overturned, but how appropriate, right? When you're writing a book about thinking. So basically what the research shows, and I, I went further than his book, um, there's another, uh, another professor, PhD at UCLA, Catherine Hales, who studied this information, this research about what they call hyper and um, focused attention states, deep focused attention states. So hyper focused attention states are what help us survive a warthog attack right? You're out in your jungle land. It's, you know, pre-humanoids and they're trying to survive in the wild. So there's a downtick of temperature. You hear the grunt of a warthog and you flee. You do something different. That lives in our biology, in our DNA at a very serious level. It is our most basic survival instinct. What happened is during the Middle Ages, when we had this beautiful flowering of education and literacy, and the development of governments, basically, that could protect us, ways to be protected from attackers, we could create institutions where deep attention states could be cultivated. That became the way that we read. Silent reading was brand new on the scene as of Augustine. Like, that was brand new to him. He was like, St. Ambrose is reading without moving his lips. Like, that was just a shocking revelation. And so by the Middle Ages, people were in universities, monasteries, libraries, reading to themselves without the threat of somebody attacking. So during this period of the last 1,500 years, we've had the flowering of information like never before. Along comes the internet. We think, oh, it's just going to be more of that. But instead, 
We can control what we read through algorithms. There are ways to click out of the information you're reading to read something else. We've got pings and dots notifying us that new information is available and the brain loves novelty, so we always go to the new. And as a result, we are back in these hyper-focus attention states. And if you can imagine that little red dot being the same thing as, uh-oh, there's a bear outside my window, that's what's happening to our biology. So part of what Nicholas Carr was urging and some of the literacy experts too are telling us we need to dedicate some time each day to the deep focus attention states so we don't lose that capacity. And it does mean discipline. But the way I like to um, explain it, because I hate just shooting and blaming and shaming people into behavior. Everyone, every family should read as a family for an hour. Together. Yeah, right. Yes. Which, if we could, that would be great. 10 minutes would be great. great. Yes. 20 minutes would be great. But I want you to see it the same way you think about physical exercise. Like we got cars and we didn't just say, okay, well, we're going to get rid of cars because walking everywhere was healthier. What we said is driving is great. Now go buy a Peloton. Make sure you go on walks. Take up running. Join a yoga class. And that's how we need to think about reading. Reading is something that we do for our brain health. And we do it not only online, but of course we do it online. That one's not going away now. What we want to encourage is actual deep focus attention states. And to be fair, I think Audible and audiobooks are also really good. I don't think you only need to use your eyes. It's just not diverting your attention that we're looking for. Getting absorbed. Good good advice. I like the comparison there to, to walking despite having a car. Yes. Um, and, and, and now it has those crazy electric bikes. So uh, you got to find new forms of exercise if you've converted to electric bikes. Um, I want to end with your conclusion, Julie. Uh, I think you label the chapter, The Courage to Change Your Mind. Mm. And we live in a time where, I don't know, I mean, I live this news cycle every day and yeah. it just seems like no one changes their mind anymore. They just drill down. And those algorithms you spoke of earlier only Ugh. reinforce it. Like we know from Facebook's own research that they've learned to like keep reinforcing, in fact, take you to more extreme positions because it keeps you on the platform longer. You know, it's the peril of getting your news and information on a social media company that was not developed for news and information. That's right. How do we get there? How do we, like, you know, you've already said that the boomers are a lost cause. That's unfortunate because you control most of our government and companies these days. And uh, so wondering for the, for the rest of us, how do we get there? The courage to change your mind. Where do you see um, opportunities? Where do you see success stories? Where do you see hope when it comes to um, developing these critical thinking skills? Because ultimately, raising critical thinkers assumes that the parents and the teachers are critical thinkers themselves, right? Right. Well, so you don't even have kids. So I'm, I wanted to ask you, when you read the book, did it feel to you, though, like there were insights that you were applying to yourself as you were reading? A thousand percent. It, 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 the, the book took me through also my childhood. I'm like, oh, what did my parents do here? Mm. Like, why, why am I? I mean, it really became a therapy session with myself. Like, why am I the way I am? Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, learned from certain people the world of absolutes because there's just one way of doing things. And it's funny because I completely went the opposite direction because I, I, I heard the world in absolutes and yet 
moved into a world of journalism where I constantly want to hear all sides. Yes. And actually to the frustration of my friends and family and my wife, especially, I'm constantly being like, well, have you considered the other side here? And they're like, I don't need you to tell me about the other side. I need you to agree with me right now. <laughs> well, so yes, I'm so glad that you said that because I think the only way that we see change is through that self-awareness, that sort of therapy with yourself piece. It is the capacity to recognize how you were raised, what formed you, how your worldview became your worldview that will lead you in the most effective manner to understand and appreciate that that is true for every other human on the planet. It's not like people are, quote, ignorant. It's that they are actually full of all the pieces of experience and information that made them who they are. And if you could inhabit their bodies, you would be the same person. That was super helpful for me. And so we change our minds when we make ourselves available to information we don't want to hear. So I look for the tells in my own reaction. Like I'll be scrolling on Facebook and some high school friend I haven't talked to in 30 years puts up an article and I see who it's written by and my body immediately goes smug. Do you have that one? <laughs> Mine is always like, oh my God, I cannot believe she still thinks that's accurate, right? Like you just go into smugness. When sure, I, I, I get the same thing when people send me stories and they're like, well, I read this and I'm like, oh God. I know yes. the publication, I know the reporter, and it, and I react the same way, and I'm like, no, they actually don't know. Like, I need this to be is, open-minded here. Well, so what I do in that moment, the second I feel smug, I say, oh, I'm not critically thinking right now. My goal with critical thinking is not conversion. It is better understanding so I can account for that person in my worldview. So we can even go to extremes, like people who you know are evil, uh, are doing terrible things. For instance a murderer, right? We all listen obsessively to true crime podcasts and watch true crime TV. Why do we do that? Not because we want to learn how to murder. We're trying to account in our minds and imaginations for people who think that the best version of life is to eliminate for good this one person or Hitler, a whole group of people or fill in the blank. So what I try to do is imagine how is the worldview this person is sharing right now creating a beautiful picture of life in their opinion? That's the question I ask. And once I can account for that, I at least have the beginning of understanding what that worldview is doing. Sometimes it needs to be truly opposed. Sometimes you will be more horrified than ever. But most of the time, what it does is it gives me additional pieces of information that make them more human that make me care, that not just hate them and see them as the opposition, but it's like, whoa, this is how far that ideology has taken this person. I'm worried about that. I like to remind people, I did my um, master's dissertation on World War II, Holocaust, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a theologian. And one of the things that struck me every day as I read was the Nazi party could not exist without the Reich's church the state church. These were white, middle-class Germans who became persuaded that the elimination of an entire population of Jews was moral. When we talk about people being in the extremes, we're always like, well, they don't count their fringe. Guess what? Nobody's fringe. We are all shaped by the world of people we're with. And if we don't understand that they are being shaped 
and we aren't curious about it from true interest to understand so we can account for what's missing for them? Like, that's the question. The question isn't, how do I get them to think differently? It's, wow, what need is this meeting that is not being met correctly right now? How do we, how do we account for that? That's my question. It's uh, it's fascinating questions to be asked. Um, there's actually an upcoming uh, documentary. I'm going to have Ken Burns on the podcast coming up soon, talking <laughs> wow. about his new his new documentary about uh, the Holocaust in the U.S. It's a seven year effort talking about what the U.S. actually knew. This whole assumption we've had through the wow. years we didn't know what was going on. We oh, knew, according to his research, did. exactly what was happening. And the whole idea. I'm always fascinated by this, and I traveled to Berlin a few years ago. How. Berlin and Germany was one of the most progressive places on earth in the 1920s. Yep. And, and so it just shows you how quickly things can change. Um, and ideas take hold and, um, how people connect themselves in society, following order, following, et cetera. And it's just, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as progressive and or I, Progressive is the wrong word because it's, it's taken in various ways now in terms of your political beliefs, but modern, advanced, right. evolved. Right. Evolved, um, right. And yet, you know, we see this, the manifestation of these things on, on the internet and in our own country these days, you know, now we're well, 80 years removed from World War II. That's right. And part of what I think happens is that when major shifts occur, whatever those are ideologically, um, spiritual beliefs, uh, scientific breakthroughs, It takes time for the dominant culture to adjust, to expand, to include. That's just, that's just historically true. It's tribalism. It's the feeling that my people need to be protected. I'll I'll give a great example of this. I remember um, being at some, some March, this was many years ago, and the person came to me and they said, you know, I believe, I'm not racist. I believe that everybody should have equal rights. It just shouldn't change anything about my life. Right. So this was a parent who had a kid who was getting ready to go to college and Mm -hmm. thought that affirmative action was going to keep their kid out of college. And I was like, yes, I see what you're saying, but you understand there are literally limited number of seats in this school. So traditionally, this population has not gotten those seats. Now they're trying to make sure some of them get them. That does necessarily mean some of us who are white will not. That is a price we're paying to try and bring equality. But we never want change to cost us anything. We're always thinking about change as bettering it for them as long as I get to keep everything I have. And that's a very scary experience for people who have, right? When you have being asked to relinquish on behalf of other people has to be justified in a way that you find tolerable. And so some people do it through morality, some do it through economics. There are lots of vehicles for that, but I just feel like we are not good at accounting for the impacts of change. And then we expect everyone to adapt to it without any difficulty. It's not how I mean, it works. We just, we, we just experienced it for the past two and a half years with COVID. Exactly. The idea that you don't wear a mask for yourself, you wear a mask for the next person. You don't, you know, you don't, uh, all the various things that, uh, that brought into conflict my individual rights versus my responsibility to my neighbors. Correct. And that's the, I love that you said that because John Rawls in his book, um, Justice as Fairness, says exactly that. In a democracy, the two competing ideals are individual rights versus communitarian values. 
And we are, every court case really comes down to those two. We are constantly navigating that. And so a solution in one era that looks like it's really progressive or advanced will look completely racist or completely wrong or completely marginalizing in another. And so whenever we are looking at these issues, I try to ask myself, what's getting prioritized here? Is it my neighborhood? Yeah, we don't want, you know, hustler in my neighborhood. So we're going to limit the rights of the, you know, CEO of hustler to put his, his store in my neighborhood, right? But that is limiting his rights for a community value. These are the questions that we always have to ask ourselves. And so sometimes it feels like we go too far in valuing a community's perspective. That's a little bit the debate about abortion right now, individual rights versus sort of a religious perspective about when life begins. These mm -hmm. are challenging issues and trying to account for all of it means we never land easily in one place for everyone. It's interesting because as we were going through the most recent raft of Supreme Court decisions in June, and by the way, there's going to be a big one in uh, next cycle, we're going to have affirmative action where likely the Supreme Court based on its makeup right now will over, yeah, affirmative action will, will be no more likely next June. But it took us back to Thomas Jefferson, who incidentally wrote that as you know, we, we use this constitution as our Bible of sorts. Yes. And the framers, including Thomas Jefferson, at the time they were writing said, you know, you're probably going to have to rewrite this every 20 years because society evolves and things change. So they wrote it with the idea of amending it. And it was amended, um, you know, more than half the amendments, I think, happened those first couple decades. The idea was that, like, we're coming up with this in the 1780s. Yeah. Um, in 1790s. Ultimately, like, to imagine that we're sitting here in 2022 saying, well, what were they intending? They would probably be like, dude, it's been 250 years. Like, throw it out. <laughs> Something's <laughs> changed. You have planes? What is this? And so, um, you know, like, it occurs to me, I always love this factoid, Julie, that the George Washington didn't know that dinosaurs existed. We didn't know about the idea of dinosaurs until the 1800s. Wow, that's so mind-blowing. That's a mind-blowing fact, oh right? Gosh. But that is in itself a fact. The idea of the dinosaur, we didn't discover dinosaurs till after the founders of Amer the United States were dead. So anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just no, find- but, Well, you know, no, I think what you're basically saying, I mean, I think we probably align in this way. I tend to be really in the present moment as my way of understanding life. And what we have are people holding onto an originalist position, believing that th this is the thing. I spend quite a long chapter in Raising Critical Thinkers talking about the art of interpretation. Interpretation is a breath. It is for a moment. And here's why. Because the person doing the interpreting lives in a different time, place, story than the original writer. It is literally impossible to know the context of the original writer's thinking. You can approximate it, guess at it. You can never know it because you are so deeply and invisibly shaped by the era in which you're reading it. Um, Hans Georg Gadamer wrote The Art of Hermeneutics, and I drew heavily from him. And he is saying that interpretation is a creative act, and it lasts as long as the interpreter says the words. So each person who reads is going to bring a different story to what they're reading. Can we get some consensus around some basic concepts? Yes. Should we read the original and try to grasp it from their perspective? Absolutely. But to be married to it as though we know 
is a little bit of hubris that I wish we could lay aside. Uh, and interpretation is the art of everything that we're talking about today. Julie, we could go on for a very long time, as you and I have discovered, but I <laughs> appreciate your insight um, into all. I hope to be able to talk to you further um, about all, all it is that kind of in the Venn diagram of our lives that we have yes. uh, overlap, but also the various um, backgrounds and experiences we bring. Julie's book is Raising Critical Thinkers. I'll link to it in the show notes. Julie, I, I so appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. I want to thank Julie Bogart for joining me. In case you missed it, again, check out the first part of our conversation in the previous episode. A reminder that you can get her new book, Raising Critical Thinkers, wherever you buy your books. You can also follow her on Instagram at Julie Brave Writer. And you can also listen to her regular interviews over at the Brave Writer Podcast. I want your feedback on this podcast. Please email me your thoughts at podcast at mo.news. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, the Mo News newsletter, for regular news updates over at monews.bulletin.com, monews.bulletin.com. You can follow me over on Instagram at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on whatever app you're listening to us on at this moment. Hit the follow button so you never miss a thing. And I would really appreciate if you could review the show in the App Store. Every review makes a difference and helps us climb up the rankings. I will see everyone back here tomorrow.